Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's conversation at Brandywine Global Around the Curve. I'm Katie Klingensmith, and I am delighted to be joined today by Anujit Sreen, who is a portfolio manager on our flagship fixed income portfolios here at Brandywine Global. There's always a lot to talk about, and especially today with energy, we're going to dive into what's going on with the Treasury curve, what's driving it, what we like, why, the risks. There's a lot to unpack. So actually, just to get us started, energy, this year, we've seen quite a bit of movement in yields. Uh, what would you say was the biggest single driver? Sure. So, uh Katie, I'd, I'd say if we focus, I mean, yields have moved around throughout the year, right? They fell in the first quarter. They've risen certainly since uh, the spring lows. Uh, so if I were to focus really on the last few months and why yields have hit the yield highs that we've seen, I'd say the major reason has just been with the resilience of U.S. growth. Um, uh, you know, the Fed is high rates, as, as you all know, 500 basis points. Uh, and yet the economy is essentially accelerated in the first and second quarters of this year. Uh, and I think it's making people question whether the Fed truly is restrictive at its current uh, interest rate. And perhaps the economy um, can not only withstand higher interest rates, maybe it should, maybe we should have higher interest rates, uh, given the performance of the economy so far. So I'd, I'd say it's growth resilience. I think there are some they might talk about. You know, I think some fiscal largesse and excess treasury issuance is a factor, but we, but I think ultimately that too is a consequence of uh, excessively easy fiscal policies, which are supporting, you know, stronger growth. So ultimately, I think it's about growth. So, so that's a happy story, and I know we could spend this conversation and many more talking about what we expect of the Fed. Just cliff notes, how do you think the Fed is interpreting this perhaps more positive than expected um, growth data? I think they uh, are probably a little surprised uh, at this stage. Um, I think there's a lot of ruminations at the Fed on what is the neutral rate, right? That they've hiked rates this much. And if you think the Fed is restrictive, right? If you think that whatever is neutral for the Fed, that they're well above that at this stage. Uh, the the consequence of that is that growth then should be below trend, right? So say, for example, the right neutral rate for the Fed is 3% or even 4%. Well, the Fed's well north of five, um, the economy should be growing below trend. And the fact that it's not, I think, is making the Fed scratch their heads a little bit saying, okay, is this because the the what we think is restrictive is really not that restrictive? Or, and I think this is really the question at the moment, at the moment or, is it they just need to be more patient to see the lags of monetary policy flow through uh, and they'll be validated next year to say, okay, we did tighten enough, things are slowing and uh, we don't need to do anymore. Clearly, we'd all love to see just higher trend growth, if that included, but inflation is the other piece here. Um, what, do you, what do you see right now in terms of the way inflation is trending in the U.S.? Yeah, so I'm going to frame this question really from sort of the two perspectives that I think exist on inflation at the moment, right? The one, one perspective is that um, inflation is a wage price spiral phenomenon. And if you look at wage growth, it's still pretty high. You're seeing headlines of you know, unions still getting some pretty big pay raises. Uh, and that's a reason to be concerned that inflation is actually going to stay elevated for longer uh, than the Fed uh, might, uh, might expect. Larry Summers is perhaps one of the biggest proponents of that view. Um, the alternative view is that inflation has been largely a function of 
Um, some really excessive monetary and fiscal policies two years ago. We're not doing that anymore. Uh, and so inflation is normalizing almost regardless of the growth rate and tightness of the labor market. And, and, and that's more the view that I subscribe to. And I think there's some evidence to support that. If you look at inflation, it really split into two components, CPI X shelter and then shelter inflation. If you look at CPI X housing, essentially, or X shelter, that's fully normalized. That's growing in 1% year over year. Looks like you know we're back to what we were pre-COVID. Uh, shelter inflation, of course, though, is still pretty elevated, but 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 that's a lagged version of what's happening in the rental market. So you look at the rental markets today; there's they've actually slowed quite a bit. So it's just a, there's a bit of a catch-up on that aspect of CPI to unfold. So so I would contend that inflation is actually in a very significant way already normalized, um, and uh, that's very encouraging to me in that. Uh, we're no longer pursuing the irresponsible policies that generated it, uh, and the economy is rebalancing in a very healthy way. So that is energy optimistic about the direction of inflation. Uh, we know that the Fed has been uh, anxious to ensure that inflation is, is truly under control. What are they going to need to see to be able to at least keep rates on hold? I think probably the two main things they're looking for are the two main things that drive their mandate, right? They're their mandate is price stability and full employment. Uh, and I think they are taking solace in the fact that notwithstanding the actual growth rates in the economy, those two areas are slowing. The labor market, as we just saw on Friday, continues to moderate. Uh, employment growth has certainly taken a downshift from where it was earlier this year. Unemployment did tick higher uh, this past month as well. Uh, and the leading indicators for wage growth you know, are also pointing to a further further slowdown. So I think the Fed takes solace in that. And then, and then I think the other thing that they're going to keep continue to track would be certainly the actual inflation data. They parse it a few different ways. Um, but I think they're generally encouraged by the developments there. They're not they're not yet at a point where they can declare victory. Um, uh, that's, you know, they've said they're data dependent, so they'll wait till see more of that data materialized. What's the risk that the Fed keeps rates too high for too long? I think that's a very real risk. Um, they are at some level inherently conflicted because they are data dependent, but data dependent on policies that have long and variable lags. So, you, you know, the Fed must at some level, has to at some level take a view on, okay, what we've done today will have this impact 18 months from now. And, um, and so you cannot be fully data dependent if you're the Fed. And yet, nevertheless, they seem to be, right? They're very much focused on the latest inflation prints. Uh, I think they do feel there's a degree of uncertainty uh, that's that's making them be, I think, sh more shorter term focused. Uh, and I think that does raise the risk that they've raised rates too high or keep them there for too long, then the economy can ultimately withstand. Switching back a little, you mentioned fiscal policy. Uh, we saw a real Treasury sell-off after the Fitch downgrade, and that downgrade focused on long-term debt sustainability and our ability to address it politically. Are you, are you concerned about the downgrade and the reasons for it? I'm not really concerned about the downgrade. I don't think that has substantially changed, you know, investment decisions uh, out there. But 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 I think it is relevant insofar it, as it highlights. Um, what is an issue, which is that the U.S. government is running a very large fiscal deficit, and that deficit got larger this past year. There's a range of reasons why that's happened. 
Some of it had to do with some of the fiscal packages passed towards the end of last year before the uh, change in Congress. Um, that's partly, you know, leading to a larger deficit this year. And there's, there are a couple of other reasons that are driving it. Nevertheless, though, the fiscal deficit is really quite large. And it's gotten worse over time. And I think that that is cause for concern. I think that is something investors are thinking about in terms of what kind of risk premia is appropriate. Should real yields be higher now to compensate investors for the fiscal sort of irresponsibility of the U.S. government? Um, so I think I think it I think it is playing a role. I wouldn't say it's more important than growth and inflation dynamics, but I think it, it is having an impact on on sort of essentially bond risk premium. You know, you are you are taking on it. The Treasury that's that's borrowed a lot of money and will have to borrow quite a bit still uh, in the years ahead. That is one contributing factor uh, yeah. to why we saw yields move up. You mentioned early on that you really thought that the change in growth outlook is probably the, the biggest driver uh, yes. of this, this move up in Treasury yields. What's next in terms of growth and, and what's driving it, especially in context of what's going to hit the, the yield? So uh, like thinking about kind of where the growth resilience is coming from, right? It's really coming from the private sector. And the two specific sources would be household consumption, particularly through July, was quite robust. Um, uh, we would argue that was uh, supported by uh, pretty reasonable uh, improvements in real income growth this year, right? Inflation's come down faster than wages, uh, and that's certainly helping support some consumption. But the savings rates also, you know, still very, very low. Uh, that reflects, you know, a high degree of optimism or some latent fiscal support that the households were still working through. We think that's largely exhausted by the end of this quarter. So uh, we think uh, households will have to be a little bit more careful and will likely return their savings behavior, maybe not quite to what it was pre-COVID, but certainly a higher savings rate than what it is today. Uh, and that'll likely lead to some moderation in, in, in demand. Uh, and then meanwhile, you know, the, the, the labor market is slowing and we think that will slow further. Um, and, uh, and that should also, we think, ultimately lead to more moderate uh, consumption. The investment side, I think, is the more uh, challenging piece to figure out, to be honest. Uh, on the one hand, again, the weaker profit growth in the fourth and first and second quarters of this year uh, would suggest, uh, along with the number of surveys, that uh, investment spending should be more muted uh, in the second half of this year and early next year. But there are a couple of important offsets. One, of course, is the tremendous focus on generative AI and, and the investment spending that that's that's generating. Uh, and then secondly, the uh, fiscal support to uh, uh, building uh, semiconductor plants and uh, green technology. Now, those are those are offsets to, I think, some of the survey data that we're seeing. How are you thinking about fiscal policy right now in terms of where yields are going? Yeah, I mean, I, I my, my sense is that there was undoubtedly some support for fiscal policy through the first half of this year. I think that's starting to fade. Uh, we are going to restart the student loan uh, repayments uh, in the next month. So that's going to start to mitigate some of that effect. Um, uh, and, and so as we head into the election next year, I think fiscal policy becomes much less of a tailwind to growth than it has been. In terms of, of savings, when we came out of the COVID lockdown period, there was obviously a lot of accumulated savings you mentioned. 
that the savings rate is a lot lower, but that aggregate savings part, how much is that playing? Yeah, so there's a number of different ways to measure this, but if we think about the excess savings that's that uh, was created, partly because of the fiscal transfers and partly because you know folks couldn't spend money like they would normally in 2020, that excess pool of savings does look like it's being depleted. I mean, it should exhaust itself, uh, in, you know, again by the end of this quarter. Uh, that's in nominal terms. In real terms, you could argue it's just about gone already. Right, that because inflation has eroded the value of that savings, uh, there really isn't much um, left at this stage. Uh, now, does that mean that consumption has to fall off a cliff? Not necessarily. I mean, it, it should mean that people become a little bit more uh, focused on, on saving more of their current income, uh, but you know, their, their, their net worth is in pretty good shape, right? Uh, equity prices have done reasonably well, home prices have done reasonably well, so, um, I think people are feeling pretty confident, uh, which is why the savings rate is so low. But nevertheless, to your question, I think that excess savings is largely gone and should lead to somewhat higher savings and therefore a little bit more modest consumption. So a lot of different factors driving growth, a lot of different factors driving inflation. What do you really see could be the catalysts for moving yields lower from here? So I think it'll be, uh, my, my guess is at least sort of three different forces that converge. Right? One would be a continued moderation in inflation. Um, I mean, the the one perspective, I didn't mention this earlier, but if you think about inflation also strictly as a monetary phenomenon, right? money growth is contracting this year. Um, and, and, and to the extent that money growth matters for infl inflation, um, uh, it's possible that the Fed overshoots their inflation target to the other side some point next year where inflation goes well below two. Uh, so that certainly could be a catalyst for lower bond yields. I think the second catalyst is that uh, we are coming up on that uh, lag of monetary policy. The Fed started hiking rates in March of last year. It takes about 18 months, can take up to two years, maybe two and a half years to fully uh, play out or fully feel the effects of what the Fed has done. Well, that should start to intensify now over the coming quarters. So growth growing you know, below trend would certainly be uh, a second catalyst. And, and related to that, Growth being below trend would be associated with weaker employment growth, right? So if we started to see the unemployment rate tick higher into the first half of 24, I think that certainly would help bond yields perform. The last piece would be, um, you know, a financial event of sorts. Now, those are always hard to anticipate and predict. Um, but what we saw, uh, I think, in March with uh, the regional banking system, I think um, while that was not a systemic issue in the end, I think something that some other area of the financial markets or economy that gets exposed because they borrowed too much, now they've got to pay a lot higher interest rates. I think that's still a risk that sits out there. And that could also be a catalyst for lower yields. How much is quantitative tightening right now driving dynamics in the yield curve? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's really hard to pin that down. Um, I, think, I think it's worth thinking about in the context of just fiscal policy. So if, or, or, or the deficit rather, so Treasury's issuing a lot of bonds and the Fed is selling a lot of bonds. So there's a lot of supply that's hitting the market together. Uh, and that's surely playing some role um, on, uh, on the level of uh, uh, bond yields. Um, um, again, I don't think it's the primary driver. Um, ultimately, um, if, it, if, it was a, if there was a real concern about this, the curve would be a lot steeper than it is today, right? Because that's where risk premium 
you know, you'd, you'd express that through buyer strike on long bonds. Um, the curve is still reasonably flat. So I, I think it's still more of a focus on the overall term structure, which is more a function of the variables we just discussed, growth and inflation. So we've talked about quite a few short-term cyclical factors, but also some long-term structural factors. I think we're getting asked more and more in the marketplace as the equilibrium for the 10-year shifted. What do you think? Yeah, um, it's a good question. Important question. Um, so the if you look at the uh, inflation like markets, the tips market, right, real yields range between kind of minus one and, uh, and zero uh, for much of the last decade. And um, if you look at where uh, yields rest, rather minus, minus one to plus one, um, if you look at where real yields ranged prior to the GFC, it was between one and three. Well, we're now 2%. So I think one of the questions that's being discussed in the marketplace is, okay, maybe that post-GFC period was just a unusual period of balance sheet recession. You just had to have super low real interest rates. But that period's done. Balance sheets are fixed. And so maybe we're going back to the pre-GFC world, in which case real yields range between one and three. Uh, and right now we're two. So perhaps we're middling. Perhaps, perhaps at the peak of the cycle, we're actually we'll go to 3% real yields. You add 2%, uh, 2.5% inflation on that, you can get five, 5.5% 10-year yields. Right? That would be one view. Um, I, I, I would suggest that I think that is um, that's unlikely. Uh, and it's unlikely because the economy is already showing that to you in the ways that matter, right? If interest rates are restrictive, right, we would start to see it in certain places. Well, certainly if you look at mortgage applications for new home purchases, right, they're in the doldrum. They're at the weakest level in two decades. That's telling you the interest rates are hurting. Uh, if you look at bank lending growth, and by the way, not just banks tightening lending standards, but banks telling you whether they're seeing demand for credit, both are really weak. Uh, which tells you again the level of interest rates is having a deleterious effect on the on the economy and, and private sector decisions. So, so, so from our perspective, we'd contend that that um, the equilibrium real interest rates has likely shifted up, but we're already at a level that's causing we think downward pressure on the economy, and therefore we, we think it's more likely the case that we're peaking around these levels at a two percent real interest rate. Given all of these different factors and indicators, where on the curve would you find most attractive? The yield curve, of course, is still pretty flat and inverted in certain uh, parts of the curve. And, and so um, as we think forward into to next year and, and the likelihood of a, a slowdown that would have the Fed, you know, consider reversing course from where they are today, that would be a world where the curve is likely to steepen, particularly if, you know, we still have a lot of bonds that have to be financed uh, on the longer end of the curve. So um, we, we think it is appropriate to be moving down the yield curve and buying you know, exposure closer to the intermediate part of the curve and five-year bonds, 10-year bonds, uh, more so than 30-year bonds today. All right. So this is a great big other topic, but I just want to get a, a, a quick summary. How, how would you put the dynamics of the U.S. yield curve, the Treasury curve, um, in context of what's happening globally, and what might that mean for flows in and out of the U.S. and for the U.S. dollar? Sure. So I'll answer this. There's a cyclical component to this and a structural component to this. Uh, the cyclical piece would be um, there's certainly been concerns that as uh, the Bank of Japan has lifted 
the cap on their bond yields, right? Removing yield curve control, the higher Japanese yields um, would also lead to higher treasury yields, right? As less capital would come from, from Japan. I think there's some concerns about that. But I think the offset to that is that the Chinese economy has been really weak, right? China is more of a source of disinflation, if not deflation today. So I think the global forces on, on the US uh, yield curve are, are probably muted. Uh, at, at this stage. I think the longer term concern uh, is really, I think, a structural shift, particularly by the BRICS, to uh, diversify out of U.S. dollar reserves into other assets, gold in particular. Um, but I think, I think given how uh, the U.S. responded to Russia and really excluded it from the financial system uh, because of the Ukraine war, I think there are other countries that longer term worry that if they end up in a situation in conflict with the U.S. or even indirectly in conflict, uh, that they'll also be shut out, and therefore they are taking steps, you know, to to protect themselves, and that means that they want to rely less on the dollar as a transactional, as a reserve currency than they have previously. Well, thank you so much for covering so much ground today, Anajit Sareen, and for being part of the Around the Curve uh, podcast series at Brandy Global. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thanks, Katie.